events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. This is another of our special series on European strategic sovereignty, looking at all the ways in which Europeans are struggling to shape their destiny and have their voice heard in a world that is increasingly descending into geo-strategic competition between other great powers who could turn Europe from being a player into a playground in their competition for power and glory. This week, I'm joined by Ulrike Franke, who is a policy fellow at ECFR and is currently on leave at the University of Oxford, where she's studying artificial intelligence, which is going to be one of the central battlegrounds in this new play for glory in the 21st century. We all know that Vladimir Putin said that whoever controls AI controls the future. And we've heard similar statements from other world leaders as well. Ulrika has written a great paper as part of the Sovereignty Series, which looks at what is at stake for European sovereignty and AI. Hi, Ulrika. Hello, Mark. So why don't you start by telling us what's at stake? (laughs) Well, if you believe some of the writing, basically everything is at stake. I mean, that's, that's really the thing about artificial intelligence and the debate around this, of course, at the moment is huge. Um, and the thing is, we're not quite sure yet where artificial, artificial intelligence may lead us. To be quite honest, we're not even quite sure what exactly artificial intelligence is. We can get to this in a second. But the underlying idea really is that potentially Artificial intelligence is set to revolutionize, well, pretty much everything. So there seems to be really no sector that AI can't, you know, speed up, improve, um, maybe even, you know, make obsolete. Um, It's true for many sectors of the economy, um, well, the labor market, which is a topic in and of itself. Um, It's being discussed in the military. So really, it's almost like anything you can imagine AI can probably do it better, make it better, make it faster. At least that's the idea. I'm sorry to say, Mark, that there's already AI that can write rather decent papers, at least kind of, you know, newspaper style papers, press releases. So I don't know, maybe even you and I aren't really safe. Oh dear. Okay. So um, what does this actually mean for Europe? I mean, a lot of people talk about how Europe could become a colony of, uh, of Chinese and American data companies. Is that, is that how you see things? So there's definitely a risk. And this colony narrative has incidentally also been used by the French. So the French, as many other European countries also did, they published a national AI strategy. And in this strategy, they very much kind of raised the alarm that Europe and France could find itself cyber colonies of indeed the United States or China. So yeah, a a lot is is at stake. What I found quite interesting, uh, so you mentioned the the one paper in the European Sovereignty series that I wrote, but there's another paper um, that I wrote together with Paola Sartori. And in this paper, we looked at the national AI strategies of the three big European countries, namely Germany, uh, France, and Italy. 
And I just mentioned the French strategy in which this, you know, fear of being a cyber colony, being squeezed between the United States and China was mentioned. What was quite interesting is that the other two countries don't really seem to think about AI in the geopolitical terms that the French do and that you also mentioned. So you were talking about the play for glory, right? Um, there's definitely a geopolitical element that one could be thinking about. But in, in my perception, when you read these national AI strategies, it doesn't seem that many European players are really thinking of AI as a means of geopolitical power. But there is definitely also, as you say, an economic disruptor. People do or do think about it uh, in market terms at the very least. And I suppose there is a danger that if Europe falls too far behind, most of that money will go to these other places, even if we don't become literal colonies. In your paper, Ulrika, you look at some of the different dimensions of, of what it means to, to do well um, in AI. Do you want to go through that and then tell us how Europe compares to America and China? Sure. So what I try to do um, in the paper is because AI is such a kind of broad term, um, it makes sense to rather than look at the output, i.e. the kind of AI that you develop, to look at the inputs. What do you need to develop AI? And um, we usually talk about three key elements, and that's talent, data, and what's being called compute, which kind of stands for a mix of computing power, hardware, software. It's the kind of the technical bit, let's phrase it that way. And I try to find out where you know the US stands on these things, where China stands on these things, because these are the two powers that we usually think are kind of leading um, in, in this field, and then where Europe stands and where it can improve its standing. And when you kind of go through these elements, so when you look at the talent aspect, so talent basically means people, right? It means people that can develop AI, program it, train it, um, that kind of that kind of talent. So on this, the US, I would say, is leading um, in the sense that they really are very good at educating their talents, they have great universities, they do, of course, have Silicon Valley, and they're also incredibly good at attracting good talent from abroad and really worldwide. China on talent is actually also quite good in the sense that Chinese universities have a good tradition of um, mathematical um, sciences, which, of course, is very important. China is, is investing in, in trying to educate more and more people. They are not quite as good as the U.S. in attracting talent, but are also kind of working on this. And it's actually quite interesting that between China and the U.S. on the very high level, there's even a kind of a fight for talent. So some very high level people kind of go from, you know, Google to Baidu, which is a Chinese AI company. Um, and so there, there, there's a bit of a fight between Often it's Chinese nationals who are being reappropriated. So some of the top AI people were at Microsoft for a while. They were Chinese nationals who then ended up going and either setting up their own companies or being or being encouraged to return to China. Yes, yes, no, that is absolutely that is absolutely right. Um, and so one of the problems here, first of all, before I get to Europe, is that there's really a scarcity of talent worldwide, really. I think I saw a recent report by LinkedIn that said that data scientists and AI machine learning programmers are the two professions um, or professionals that are the most sought after worldwide. There's uh, the, the Microsoft research chief, Peter Lee, who compared the cost of hiring a leading AI researcher to hiring an NFL, uh, so National Football League quarterback. So we're really talking about like 
very high um, salaries and and big competition for talent. So Europe on the talent side, I mean, we're not we're not doing too badly. Um, you know, all over Europe, there are, there are a bunch of good universities. Um, and, and we're quite good at, at educating people. More can be done and a lot of the national AI strategies that I mentioned focus on trying to create more, you know, professor posts, et cetera, to educate more talent. But, you know, the situation here isn't, isn't too bad. The big problem actually is keeping the talent. So as I mentioned, the US in particular is really good at attracting talent. And there are a lot of stories of European AI researchers that, you know, end up in Silicon Valley because they're paid better there or because just the environment is, is better there. And that is a big problem. And that is something uh, we, we should address as Europeans. Um, and, you know, there, there are lots of work being done on that front to kind of make sure that, that people don't leave as much as they do. And you also talk about acri-hires. Yes, that is an interesting uh, development that we've seen. So some of the listeners may know uh, DeepMind, the company, basically the leading AI company really worldwide. And it's, it's the company that is behind the AI that won at the, the Chinese play Go. I'm sure many listeners have heard about this. AlphaGo. And this is actually AlphaGo, exactly. And this is actually a European company. It was uh, founded in London. It is still based in London, not too far from our London offices at King's Cross. But the thing is, it has been acquired by Google. So it is now arguably American. And this is one example, and there are many, many others. You know, DeepMind is actually kind of very particular, but it's one example of this tendency or this, this trend of aqua hires, which means that some companies are basically buying smaller AI companies, AI startups, not so much because they want the companies, but because they want the talent, they want the people that work in this space. So they buy the company just to kind of buy the people. And then Goldman Sachs did a report on that, kind of tracing um, how that happens. And of course, here the Europeans have a problem because who buys small AI startups? Well, of course, it's you know Google and co. And Europeans don't have that. So that's your first dimension. Um, yes. What about your other two? Yes. So that was the talent dimension, one of the three key inputs into AI. The second is data. I mean, this is something we hear all the time, right? Data is the new oil. Um, data is is the new component in geopolitical power, etc. Um, and the reason for that is that most AI at the moment, so we're generalizing massively here, right? But most AI at the moment is is based, or the AI breakthroughs, let's put it that way, are based on machine learning. And machine learning at the moment requires a lot of data to learn, right? So and data... Should we just, for people who, uh, they probably turned off by now, but just in case there are people who aren't fully up to speed with, with uh, this sector... The big difference between machine learning is that old-fashioned computers used to program it and you would therefore say, if X happens, then do Y. Whereas with machine learning, what you do is you give the computer lots of information and the algorithm works out what it does in different places. So you don't really know where it's going to end up when you start. Is that right? Yeah, that is that is reasonably well put. Yeah, exactly. So as a shorthand, I would also say it's rather than you know people telling a computer what to think it's the computer learning what to think it's not a perfect analogy but that's the key idea artificial intelligence okay so keep on going so you need lots of data 
Exactly. Learning. So for that, for that type of, um, so for machine learning, for the type of machine learning that's most promising at the moment, which is the most promising bit of AI at the moment, you need a lot of data. And data, data is is almost anything. I mean, anything that we do produces data of some kind, right? You write an email. There is a lot of data of, you know. On what kind of computer have you written this email? Uh, what email service do you use? At what time did you send it? You know, all this kind of, we, we've been also calling this metadata at some point. Or, you know, your credit card information, you know, when do you buy what? Um, all of this basically is data. And you can feed this into machine learning algorithms that can then make sense of it. And now the question is, like, who has data? And once again, you know, the United States and China are leading partly because of different reasons. I mean, both have the advantage that they have big companies that are used by many, many people. So for the United States, let's take Google. There are many others. But Google, of course, is used worldwide. And the search results alone, you know, just people all over the world using Google to search for stuff, um, gives you enormous data that, you know, you can use. They provide databases, etc. China has similar companies. They're mostly are used by Chinese users, though not exclusively. But of course, there are lots of Chinese users as well. And uh, so they also have a lot of data there. That's the first advantage. The second advantage has to do with the ability of actors to gather and then store the data. That's easier in China where there are less rules about this, more difficult in the US, but still not as difficult as in Europe. And so let's talk about Europe for a second. Europe has good data protection laws and privacy laws, which I would really like to emphasize, I think is great and is exactly the way to go. You know, with regard to data gathering, that, that however poses a problem because it means that for European companies, of which there already are, you know, fewer, let's say smaller companies, um, it's much harder for them to gather data in Europe than it is for Chinese companies to gather data in China. That, in addition to the fact that Europe isn't one country, um, not one system for many things, not one language, not, you know, you know, the fragmentation of Europe in many regards, makes it simply harder for Europe to gather data. Um, and that is, that is a concern, and that is also something that different European policymakers, both at the EU level and the national level, are trying to address, for instance, through the digital single market. So the idea of doing more on the EU level uh, so that you can gather data on the EU level. Right. In, in your um, paper, you say that of the 66 key AI players in a recent listing, only nine were, were European. So you just don't have any of these large companies. But also, Europeans have gone to great lengths to make it much more difficult to, to store data, as you were saying. Do you want to talk yeah. a bit about well, again, so I'm always very, very careful not to create the impression that I'm saying for AI, you need a lot of data. It's harder to gather data because of Europe's privacy and, and um, data security rules. Hence, we need to get rid of this to have more data. I think that's absolutely not the way uh, we should be going. W what I mean by that, well, simply, you know, th there are rules that don't allow to, well, gather as much data while, you know, some someone does something or uh, to store it or to combine it. So what happens, for instance, in the U.S. a lot is that you have data brokers that basically hoover up any kind of data from different sources and kind of put it together and then sell it. And all of these things are 
made harder in the EU or we're trying to make them harder. And again, I think this is, this is right, but this does pose a problem and we need to come up with ways of how to work around this. So there may be some ways, but yeah, we can get to this later. Get to the ways in a little bit, because we exactly. still have one more dimension of European weakness to wallow in, which is the whole question <laughs> of hardware. Yeah, so the third area is compute um, or hardware and software. It's basically the, the tech basket, right? That's how I would like our, our listeners to think about this. And so here we're talking, for instance, about chips, specific kinds of chips. It's really easy to kind of go down a rabbit hole and, and get lost in kind of discussions about uh, GPUs and CPUs and what kind of chips you need to train AI and that kind of stuff. It's not particularly important for us now, but the important thing to know here is that on the tech side, Europe, I think, actually seems to have the biggest problem in the sense that we don't have the, the chip companies and here we are very dependent on the US, as incidentally is also China. So I kind of went the wrong way around here, talking about Europe first. But the situation on, on the compute side, um, as much as I can understand it, and this is really where it becomes very technical, is that the US is leading here. And especially in the chip part, so processing units that you need to, to, to develop and train AIs, um, to the extent that China is actually dependent on the US, they're trying to, to change that. Um, but for now, that's, that's still the case. Um, and so here I would say, yeah, the U.S. is somewhat leading in, in, in front of um, China and we are dependent on, on the U.S. as well. But this is a massive trauma in China. It started with the, mm -hmm. with the question of ZT, Z, ZTE, as Americans call it, ZTE. There was a threat of cutting them off from American technology, uh, which created a, a major uh, Sputnik moment in, um, in many different uh, parts of the Chinese establishment because they realized how vulnerable they were. And then with the, the whole war on Huawei at the moment, we're seeing this being taken to, a, to an extra level. And some people worry that the entire uh, technological basis of, on which China is, is building is, is these American chips and that America could actually end up putting Huawei out of business by, by um, disrupting its supply chain. Yes. And so we did. So the U.S. is increasingly aware of this. I mean, we all know that the U.S. is increasingly aware of China being a strategic competitor and also in this field. And so, for instance, already in 2015, uh, the U.S. government banned Intel from selling, you know, high end processors to China. Uh, so so the U.S. is already trying to, you know, make this kind of research or development in China harder. But of course, the Chinese are massively investing in, in trying to build up these capabilities themselves. So here there is a bit of a race going on, I think, where basically everyone is trying, is trying to um, improve the situation. And it seems to me that here Europe also has, um, has some, some difficulties, so definitely dependencies. So you talk about how Europe needs to get its act together on, uh, to make up for its deficiencies in those three different areas. But you also talk about some of the, the, the sort of specific challenges which Europe faces at the moment. Um, do you want to talk more about those? Yeah, I mean, the, the challenges, I mentioned many of them kind of while talking. So on, on talent, as I said, a lot of talent is leaving um, Europe or is not staying in Europe. That is something that needs to needs to be addressed and more 
talent should be trained and educated on data. We were talking about the, the difficulty of, of collecting data, partly because of the fractured market um, and, and also different consumer behavior, by the way, plus uh, other rules for, for gathering and storing data. And then finally, on the, on the kind of compute area, I, I'm not quite sure, to be honest, where the, the main issue here is other than, you know, at the moment, we don't have these capabilities and we need to build them. But that's how I, how I would phrase them, yeah. You, you have some very specific ideas on how we can hedge against it. So there's, you know, you talk about improving data collection and sharing at European level, increasing investment. Maybe you can. Exactly. So um, I've tried to, to come up with some ideas of how we can rectify some of these problems. And again, I think it's important to mention that all over Europe, and this is really an ongoing process, governments are drafting and publishing national AI strategies. This is something, by the way, that the European Commission has specifically called for. So the EU also has an, has an AI strategy that is trying to help build up European AI capabilities. Um, that's one of its goals. And the second goal is to make sure that European AI is ethical. I can get to that in a second. But um, so in this publication, the Commission also specifically asked all European countries that haven't done so yet to develop and publish their own national AI strategies and and yeah try to increase make better the um, uh, European AI capabilities. So some of the things I'm recommending are kind of being done or being started slowly, but it's important still to kind of mention them again. The first recommendation. I want to emphasize is really on this bit about data collection and data sharing on a European level. That goes back to the European single market. And here the effort should be to basically make it possible that European companies and also researchers can gather and, and store more data, but in an anonymized way, so that make it possible that we can keep our privacy standards while still have enough data to own data to train our own algorithms on. France and Germany, for instance, are working on this, are trying to work on this and this together. And there are some publicly funded projects. Uh, France is trying to make its public uh, organization do this more because they also have a lot of data. So there are some efforts to, to make this happen, which I think would would be quite important. Maybe a side note on this. Um, I kept saying that, you know, for machine learning, you need a lot of data. That is true to some extent. However, there's also a lot of research being done on what's called data efficiency. Um, it's really kind of trying to do small data AI. So having AI that trains, that doesn't need as much data to train on. And my recommendation would also be for Europe to try and focus um, more on this, invest more on, on this specific part of machine learning, number one, because it's promising, and number two, because you would basically kind of hit two birds with one stone. You could carve out a niche, a special niche in the machine learning community and do you know AI that doesn't require as much data. So that's the data, the kind of data recommendation. Um, right. Improve data collection, data sharing on a European level and, and focus more on, more on small data AI. Um, four more recommendations, don't you? I think so. <laughs> so um, another recommendation, it sounds, it sounds so silly, but it's important. And I phrased it as increase investment and spend smarter. So of course, what 
is always quite important is, is money, is money to do things. And so what the European countries and the EU may want to do is make sure that they help, you know, AI startups uh, work in Europe and so that they don't have to leave immediately for Silicon Valley and go to like American venture funds. So um, invest more in that kind of research and also maybe be a bit less risk adverse. So try to you know, fund more of these so-called moonshot projects that may or may not work, but if they work, they work really nicely. But I also said... In 2016, Europe only spent $4 billion on AI compared to seven in China and 23 in North America. Yeah. Since then. So I, I, so that, that does, these are some numbers I found. Um, So I'm going to say something on all of these numbers. So there are so many numbers at the moment. All of these numbers about how much is being invested in AI and how much you know you can gain from it, they're very, very speculative because AI is so badly defined. And I just saw another report that basically said that like half of so-called AI companies aren't actually using any AI and that kind of thing. So it's really, really difficult to put a price tag on anything. But yes, so Europe doesn't spend as much to support its AI uh, companies as other players do. But also, and that's the kind of spend smarter bit, it does partly so in not such a smart manner. Again, the kind of risk aversion can be problematic. It's, it's much easier in the US, for instance, to get venture capital to, to do more outrageous things. So, um, outrageous. Recommendations about regulation. Yeah, yeah. So regulation, and that brings us to the ethical AI bit that I mentioned earlier. So, you, most listeners have probably heard this idea, this term that Europe is a regulatory superpower. And, and Mark, you've mentioned this on previous podcasts. I know this. I'm somewhat skeptical, to be honest, of this whole idea. So the idea is that, you know, Europe and the EU, because of the size of its market, um, can set standards that others then have to follow or that they do follow. It's not wrong because it has happened um, and it is also happening in the kind of tech market with, with GDPR, regulation again on, on, on data collection and all of that. But it is, it is a bit of a passive power. So it's difficult to, to yield, let's put it that way. Nevertheless, I think that Europe, and this is something the EU Commission has also um, really emphasized, that Europe could try to use the power that it does have to try and make AI, well, more ethical is the, is the term, make sure that the way that AI is, is used and even the way that AI is trained is done so following some ethical standards. So for instance, you're trying to avoid biases, which tend to be in the data and then tend to be in the AI. It's, it's, it's things like you know systems that use AI to help recruit for certain posts, massively discriminating against women because the existing data suggests that, you know, there are no women in this post, so clearly they can't be good or, you know, we just not recruit women. And so the AI also doesn't recruit women. That's kind of an easy example of biases in AI. And, you know, ethical AI would try to, you know, not have these biases. <laughs> that would be number one. And number two would also be to use AI only for, for ethical things or at least not non-ethical things. So don't use, you know, facial recognition to oppress your um, your population, things like that. So, so the hope is that that Europe can create rules on ethical AI and can make ethical AI a bit of a, uh, a standard in Europe that then companies 
would follow in Europe and then hopefully in the rest of the world just because it's easier to have one standard for you know the whole world and EU the EU has worked on this a lot so that, there are two ways that story ends isn't it on there one way <laughs> yeah basically force everyone to 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 uh, go up the standards so that benefits the consumers the other way is that it shuts people out of the European market thereby creating a space for European producers so um you can either help the producers or the consumers potentially as a result of it but yeah that's that's one way to to put it yeah your fourth set of recommendations is something not entirely surprising for anyone who knows you, Vika, which is that you think that people should embrace AI for the military realm. Ah, I, I very much would like, would like to emphasize that I, I made sure that there was a bracket within limits in this sentence. So yes, I do work on AI in the military realm. And I think there is a role for artificial intelligence in the military realm. However, this is something where we need to be really, really careful. Um, many of you, of the listeners probably know about the debate on killer robots. You also favor killer robots, don't you? <laughs> I don't favor killer robots, no. Really? I um, thought that, that, that you could save lots of lives by, um, by having um, very precise killer robots um, rather than... Um, uh, relying on the, the the kind of blunt the scalpel of killer robots rather than blunt carpet bombing um, and and more kind of traditional ways of uh, of intervening. Right. So we need a whole podcast to talk about this particular um, uh, topic, and I'm happy to do this in a few months when I come back from Oxford, where I have worked on this in more detail. But no, I I, I don't support killer robots. I think that's easy to say, but I do think that there is a lot of room to use artificial intelligence in the military realm, in military organizations, even for more, you know, mundane things such as logistics. Um, Intelligence analysis is an interesting one. That's where a lot of the AI research has already already, um, been been used. Um, And the reason why I put this specifically or why I mentioned it specifically in this paper is that there is some discussion at the moment whether the use of artificial intelligence in the military could actually represent an opening for, let's say, mid-sized power with reasonable financial power and, you know, quite good talent or tech capability. And that, of course, you know, would refer to Europe. The thinking is that maybe the use of AI may undermine the importance of big and expensive platforms, aircraft carriers, fifth-generation stealth fighter jets, that kind of thing that mostly only the the really big military powers have. If AI, if AI applications undermine that, then there could be an opening for mid-sized power with with money and and talent to, um, to have more military power and create more military power without having to invest in these, in these platforms. And what I'm basically saying is that I feel that we in Europe aren't thinking these implications through sufficiently. So again, talking about the AI strategies that I've analyzed, only France of the three countries plus the EU, only France even really mentions military AI applications, um, while Italy and, and Germany basically just ignore it. And I don't think that's a great, great approach. I think that's very problematic. And so I want Europe to be sure that they have this, this part covered. I, I don't want Europe to support killer robots. Okay. And then you have one final thing. We're running out of, 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 of time, Rika, but you also call for education of, of population and policymakers for, yes. for AI. 
briefly. Yes, yeah, so very, very briefly, exactly. So it, it, it's what it says. We, it, it's a good idea to educate basically anyone and everyone on this because AI is going to be present you know, in all our lives, really. And I mentioned the Finnish AI strategy, which I really like because their idea is to train up 1% of the population. And I think it's really the general population on AI. And they kind of hope that there is a snowball effect there. And I think that is a really nice approach and something that, that Europe should think about. Great. Fantastic. So lots of food for thought from Ulrike there. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, and you want to find out more, you should head straight to our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts, where we will put up links to Rika's paper on AI, as well as all of the other papers in our special sovereignty, strategic sovereignty series. If you have enjoyed it, you might also want to let your friends and family and acquaintances know about it by writing about it on your social media page or on ours and above all by giving us a positive review on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast on. But for now, from Ulrika Franke and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher on ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch and our podcasts in this series are being edited by Abel Ribink. <laughs>